Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Strike averted in California, where 21,000 registered nurses reach a last-minute agreement. What the Writers Guild of America is doing on Cyber Monday against a well-known anti-union publisher. Today on the show, the latest from the Heat and Frost Insulators and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Welcome to the Wednesday, November 23rd edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. Pete Almini is going to be our first guest on the show today, longtime supporter of the show, and he comes to us from the Heat and Frost Insulators, where he serves as executive director for their Labor Management Trust. And today we're going to talk about some legislation. It's a bill called the Federal Mechanical Insulation Act. And what it essentially does, it expands and modifies to the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007 to include mechanical insulation as an energy conservation commodity for all federal buildings. Now, prior to this bill, there were no provisions for mechanical insulation. So, it would essentially clarify that mechanical insulation energy audits qualify under comprehensive energy evaluations for all federal buildings. We're talking about saving a whole lot of money here. That's the bottom line. So right now, Heat and Frost Insulators are looking to build support for this piece of legislation so it can be considered for inclusion in a legislative vehicle that will pass with the House of Representatives. And right now it's been referred to the House Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce Committees. And uh, they're trying to really fast-track this. They uh, hope to have this introduced to the House next week, November 29th. So they're working with the lame duck uh, Congress on this. Now, uh, mechanical insulation, if you've been listening to this show for any duration with uh, Pete, he is so articulate on this issue. Mechanical insulation is engineered and designed to be applied to mechanical systems and is quite different from insulation that you put in your home, in the walls and ceilings. It essentially helps a designed, engineered system function at a specific operating temperature to make sure it's at peak performance. And if it's not done right, you're not getting anywhere. That's where the union comes in. So Pete Almini will be our first guest to uh, really get into this subject and hopefully take it over to the finish line. That's what it's all about. Harry Grill will be joining us later in the show on behalf of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where he serves as National Field Director for their Department of Political and Legislative Action. And in a nutshell, what we're going to talk about is boots on the ground. You know, labor was pretty darn active in the uh, run-up to the midterm elections, and we saw the results, not in all states, but a number of states. It was quite a surprise. 
So we'll talk about uh, their political action and what they're going to do in, well, this lame duck session and in the uh, the new year. Now, between now and December 6th, the Teamsters, along with many, many unions, are concentrating on the state of Georgia. The Georgia AFL-CIO recently launched a member-to-member mobilization campaign to elect, or actually re-elect, Senator Raphael Warnock to the U.S. Senate. Close to 200 union member release staff and volunteers are phone banking, canvassing, sending mail, visiting work sites, all in an effort to reach more than 247,000 Georgia union members and their families ahead of the uh, runoff election. And the Teamsters are right in the middle of all that. So Harry Grill will be joining us later in the show to talk about that and more. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. More than 21,000 registered nurses and nurse practitioners at 21 Kaiser Permanente facilities in Northern California have reached a tentative agreement with management averting a two-day strike that was set to begin on Monday. A separate two-day strike with 1,000 union nurses in Los Angeles was also prevented after the union secured a tentative agreement with the healthcare giant. Now, the strike in Northern California, the one with 21,000 nurses, that would have been the largest private sector nurses strike in U.S. history. That, according to the California Nurses Association, which is a a division of National Nurses United. The members will vote to ratify the contracts, their four-year contracts, over the next several weeks. Kathy Kennedy is an RN at the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at Kaiser's Roseville Medical Center. She said, we are very pleased with this new contract, which will help us recruit new nurses and retain experienced RNs and nurse practitioners. We not only won the biggest annual raises in 20 years, but we've also added more than 2,000 positions across our Northern California facilities. This will ensure safe staffing and better patient care. You know, that's interesting, the safe staffing part California has legislation on that, and many of the hospitals have been violating that. It's something like four to five patients per nurse, and I'm hearing stories that it's sometimes double that, and they get sanctioned for it. But you know what? The bottom line is they're obviously making a lot of money if they're able to hire 2,000 more people and come up with the biggest raise in 20 years. And again, this goes back to the pandemic. The pandemic has changed everything, especially when it comes to uh, health care. The Hearst Union, which organized with the Writers Guild of America East, has been working to bargain its first contract. Unfortunately, this company, Hearst, is historically anti-union. And they responded by stalling at the table for more than two years and delivering inadequate unreasonable counterproposals. Well, on Monday, there's going to be a lot of noise created about this situation. And uh, what they're doing, the Writers Guild, is putting together a rally on Monday 
November 28th in New York City. There'll be speakers, drinks, food, you name it. And they want as many as people as possible to show up. And, you know, in New York, they're probably going to get a pretty good crowd. There's no doubt about that. There's 500 members in the bargaining unit. They are fighting for three things. Fair wages and fair benefits. Hearst is currently paying its employees below industry standard rates, and so far their proposals at the table aren't cutting it. Number two, no more delays. In January, January will mark two years of bargaining at Hearst, and they've essentially gotten nowhere. And lastly, respect the respect every union member deserves. Time and again, Hearst has blatantly bucked its legal obligation to notify and bargain with the union over layoffs and terminations, so... The union has filed two active unfair labor practice charges, and it won't stop advocating for the respect that members deserve. So hats off to the Writers Guild of America East. About 200 members of Actors' Equity Association and their supporters came together last week in Times Square, chanting, raising their voices, sharing their stories of why ongoing contract talks with the Broadway League are so important. Equity's actors and stage managers on Broadway are fighting for a new contract that enhances work coverage rules, and that includes scheduling and safety on the job. Now, that union has been negotiating with the Broadway League since September. At least it's not going two years there. Now on to uh, Starbucks news. Allegations of the coffee chain's union busting continue. And guess what? They shut down another unionized store in Seattle. It's the fourth unionized store in that city to shut down since the union push began. What the company is saying? They're claiming safety and security concerns as the reason for closure. Starbucks Workers United, the union that represents the workers, called the move unacceptable and, quote, the most clear-cut case of retaliation this company has shown closing a union store yet. They pretty much posted that on Twitter, noting that the store is set to close on the anniversary of the first union victory in Buffalo last winter. The more than uh, 260 unionized Starbucks stores will remain without a contract. Yeah, they're still, they're still pushing, still pushing. And uh, one more here. New York City's Department of Consumer and Worker Protection published a notice last week proposing that app-based food delivery workers should be paid at least $23.82 per hour plus tips. Not right away. By 2025. The uh, highly anticipated pay hike is mandated By a law, the law was passed last year, that requires a minimum wage for workers using apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats. Now, under the current proposal, the pay minimum will start at $17.87 on January 1 and then increase to $23.82 by April 1st of 2025. The new pay scale is likely to face legal challenges from delivery platforms. You know that's going to happen. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Pete Almini on behalf of the Heat and Frost Insulators coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. 
It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the U.S. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF. Union podcast. And I got to mention again, there's a lot of problems at Twitter right now. And there's other platforms out there that you might consider, like Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, and Mastodon. Mastodon's getting a lot of play. In fact, we're uh, working with our producer right now to uh, get the show on those various platforms because Twitter, I don't know if Twitter's going to survive here with what happened to that company. My gosh. All right, let's go to uh, New Jersey right now. Welcome one of our regulars and supporters and sponsor of America's Workforce. That would be the Heat and Frost Insulators. And joining us each and every month is Mr. Pete Almini, who is the executive director of their Labor Management Trust. Pete, welcome back to the show. How are we doing today, my brother? Hey, how you doing today? <laughs> Getting ready for the holidays. Are you all set? Pete, I have to ask you, where did this year go? My gosh, it just flew by. It goes fast. It goes from from one thing to the next. We're all getting ready for a weekend of food, family, and football. And those are three, three big things in my life. You got it. You got it. Yeah, we uh, we'll talk about Thanksgiving in the weeks ahead. And the lame duck Congress is one we're focusing on right now because uh, there's some legislation. You and I have touched on this in past shows, and uh, this makes all the sense in the world. But when you're dealing with Congress, sometimes they just don't get it. And uh, what I'm referring to here is the uh, the Federal Mechanical Insulation Act. And, And again, Pete. I think we have to emphasize to our listeners, we're not talking about the insulation in the walls or ceilings. It's a little bit different. It's a lot different. And uh, I'm going to let you uh, explain what this legislation is all about and why we need it. Go ahead. All right. Great. Thank you. Yes, we do need this legislation. 
because there are there are as we talked before, Flash. There are so many laws on the books that deal with energy and energy conservation and energy efficiency and tax incentives. Um, yet a lot of these laws uh, either don't address what they should. The intent is there, but it's not spelled out specifically in the details. And that's what the, this bill is about, the Federal Mechanical Insulation Act. It actually is a bill that's going to define existing bills on how it's going to be applicable for mechanical insulation. Uh, insulation is commonly known. Most people know it as the, as the uh, pink stuff that's in their attic. By the way, mm-hmm. insulation is not pink. That one company colors it pink for their marketing purposes, and it was brilliant 40 years ago when they did it. You bet it was. But, but people think of insulation as the, as the stuff in their attic, the stuff in the walls. Maybe when you buy a window for your home, or even your building, your commercial building, you look at the insulation value, roofing. I mean, all of that's part of the building envelope, as we call it. And it is insulation, and it is valuable, and it is needed. But there's another type of insulation that I've been talking about with you for three years now, going on three years, and that's the mechanical insulation part of the building. And there are so many regulations that talk about the efficiency of a building or a home or a factory, but it doesn't fully address all of the areas that it should. And it's not a conspiracy. It's, it's nothing along those lines. It's just a fact of not knowing. Mechanical systems within the building are purposely hidden because it's not that attractive. Pipes and ductwork and boilers and steam traps and valves. Nobody wants to see that in their in their building. And it's, and it's relocated to the boiler rooms. It's related to the basements, to the roofing, mechanical rooms. It's in the walls. And not many people realize the, the, the function of it and the importance of it. But those systems have to operate at a very efficient level. If it's, if it's operating at an efficient level, the cost of energy usage will go down, be using less energy. And if, if the uh, furnace and the air conditioner are working less, it's also going to release less harmful uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And here's another cost factor that people don't realize, too. That boiler and furnace may, may uh, last the life cycle of that equipment, may even last longer, even double the lifespan of a, a mechanical system if it's properly insulated. That means it's working less. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's a pretty basic way to uh, look at, it, at this. Congress passed in 2007 the Energy Independence and Security Act. In Section there's a section in there that refers to the National Insulation Conservation Policy Act. And it, 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 I'm sorry, it gets a little confusing, but it took a long time for us to decipher all this on, on where are these existing laws. Forget about the new ones that have to be passed. Let's look at this, the existing laws that are, are already there. And the Energy Independence, Independence and Security Act has regulations in there to monitor and to maintain federal buildings for energy efficiency. The problem with that regulation, though, 
it does not spell out mechanical insulation. Yeah, it, it can be a reach if someone really wanted to dive into it and be able to make that connection. But what we're trying to do with the Federal Mechanical Insulation Act is pass this act so it becomes law. So in these, in these existing regulations, mechanical insulation is going to be listed as a line item. And it's going to be specifically defined. It's going to be specifically um, be evaluated. And it also is going to specify to have properly trained people install the insulation because improperly installed insulation is not going to work either. Right. So um, we're very excited about this. We, uh, the bill is going to be introduced next week. We are right now um, – uh, scurrying around, trying to get as many original co-signers uh, from the House of Representatives as possible. Uh, we sent out, we, we are communicating with uh, 113 uh, members of Congress that are on the Ways and Means Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee and all of their staffs and anyone else that's influential that would like to be a, a co original co-signer for this bill that should be introduced um, as of next week. We're really excited about it. So, so right now, just to clarify here, this legislation that uh, passed in 2007, the Energy Independence and Security Act, it monitors it monitors energy usage. Do, do they gather that data? I'm just wondering. Or wh- wh- When they monitor, what do they do with that? Well, Great question. Thank you for asking that, because that really eludes what I want to be able to talk about. It, that law specifies that federal buildings do have to do some sort of evaluation. Uh, energy audit, if you will, is a, is a term that's, that's used quite often. And right. it's, it's become one of the buzzwords in the last 10 years. And it's pretty loose because it's not well-defined. An energy audit is an evaluation of a building to look at its energy usage and whether it's being used efficiently and properly and efficiently. And it looks at, in the the regulation, it looks at specific parts of a building. Is the uh, units of the mechanical system large enough for the space that it has to condition, meaning is a furnace big enough to supply heat to the building? Is the air conditioning system big enough to supply it to the building? Are there gaps um, on the walls? Is it properly insulated? Is the water system being efficient? You know, when when we talk about efficiency of energy, you know, we also have to consider the efficiency of how we use our water. That's a commodity that uh, in our children's lifespan is, is going to be a major issue. Um, but is the energy resources of a building properly being used? And I, I know for the insulation, based on national studies, that uh, every building can be considered to be lacking 10 to 30% of, of mechanical insulation within that building. And that's costing billions of dollars and billions of uh, uh, barrels of oil, and we all know how important that is. Well, especially now with the uh, the price of energy, this makes all the sense of the world. And, and I was going to ask you too, as far as the timing 
of uh, working with Congress on this. I mean, this don't you think this is like the perfect time to hit them on this with 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 uh, energy prices at pretty much an all time high? Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's part of our outreach is that we're reaching out to Democrats uh, and Republicans as well. And, uh, you know, typically uh, Republicans uh, don't really want to hear from the labor unions. But, you know, when something is as obvious and beneficial to the taxpayers of this country, uh, everybody has to look at it. And uh, I I hope uh, partisan politics can be put aside. Um, energy is a, is a huge part of our structure in this country right now. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a huge political football. And, you know, the taxpayers, you know, we got to pay in this talk about spending billions of dollars in, in wind farms and, and solar cells and, and geothermal. And, and all of that is great technology. I see that in our future. But we have to be smart. We have to be realistic and look at some of the existing technologies that we have now that are also pretty advanced. We just can't always spend money on the shiny object in the room. You know, we have to be efficient and be able to look at what we already have to be able to uh, have a dynamic and robust economy moving forward, regardless of whether it's Republican or Democrat. Pete Almini joining us on our live line today, as he does each and every month here on America's Workforce. Pete is executive director of the Labor Management Trust for the Heat and Frost Insulators. Mechanical Insulators, LMCT.com is a website. Later in the show, we're going to be checking in with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, boots on the ground, what they'll be doing in Georgia and beyond that. It's all part of America's Workforce. Back in a few. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's CWAD4.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now... 
Back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just do this. Sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to New Jersey and rejoin Pete Elmini on behalf of the Heat and Frost Insulators, their labor management trust. We're talking about energy independence and a piece of legislation here. It's called the Federal Mechanical Insulation Act. And um, we got into the nitty-gritty in the first segment, and there is a good possibility that we could move this forward. But there's changes in Congress. And, Pete, I have to ask you, uh, I see you're, you're targeting next week here for the uh, for an introduction into the House. Now, you know that the House is going to change political parties as far as leadership goes beginning in January. So does that mean the work that you have done so far, does that have to be reintroduced? How, how does that pan out? Well, initially, we're going to try to get this introduced in the lame duck sessions uh, of Congress. Uh, we're still reaching out to the Republican side, and we're hoping that it's going to get introduced in time where it can be voted on before the new Congress uh, takes over. And I'm not fearful of the new Congress because I do feel that this topic and what this bill presents is bipartisan. And it's going to be my job to be able to convince uh, across the aisle to the Republicans that this is that this is good. Yeah. Uh, for everybody. And one of the, the partners that we have in supporting this bill is the National Union Insulation Contractors Alliance and several other contractor associations. And we're trying to get some other commerce organizations to come on board and support. And we're working on that right now. Because we feel if, if this is not just only good for labor, it is good for commerce, it is good for the economy, and it's good for the taxpayers of this country. If we're able to uh, sell that, what it is, it's a relatively short bill. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It's only three pages. So it's not anything that's massive, and there's not, a, there's not anything stuck in there that is not related to uh, federal mechanical insulation. I mean, it's all, it's very direct and yeah. all it's doing is just modifying some existing laws that are some massive existing laws that are on the books and just making recognition to a, to a commodity called mechanical insulation. And, and we're talking about mechanical insulation in all federal buildings. And, and Pete, I, I know you probably have an accounting on that. There, first of all, there's a whole lot of federal buildings in this country, and this be, could be quite dramatic. And again, we're talking about saving energy. I mean, that's got to be a big part of your sell right now, right? Absolutely. Sure. Save, saving money. And it's not just the existing federal buildings. It's also buildings going to be spent using um, federal money. How many billions of dollars is going to be used? A lot, I should say. There's going to be a lot of billions of dollars going to be used in the infrastructure law over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And to be able to have mechanical insulation be mentioned as an important part of that, that's huge. That is huge. But we have to be able to get, get it on the books. And, and once it's on the books, I mean, once it's law, that's what I mean beyond the, it's on the books. Once it's, it's law, 
then we can now we can push this heavily with uh, architectural engineering specifications of a building building inspectors will have to look at it it opens up the whole new possibilities just by having that legislation language stated that's going to recognize mechanical insulation yeah this is a big benefit to the the insulators union and i'm just wondering has anybody there might be premature but um maybe you can take a guess how many jobs could be created if they add mechanical insulation to these buildings i mean that's that's got to be pretty astronomical in my in my view do you know anything about that the, the the national study that was done several years ago, if we were just to address the 10 to 30 percent of mechanical insulation that is missing in buildings, that is that's costing billions of dollars a year, we feel that that's going to increase the amount of jobs over 89,000 people would then have would have jobs. And I want to clarify jobs. We don't train people to have a job. A job is considered to be temporary. We train people to have a lifetime career in installing mechanical insulation through our apprenticeship programs. But we can, we feel that it's going to increase employment opportunities to every sector, every part of this country if we just address the mechanical insulation that is missing. And that's not even to mention the future buildings, structures that are going to be built under the infrastructure laws. So it's very possible we're looking at an increase of anywhere from eighty to 90,000 uh, people installing insulation. It's a win-win all around. You save energy, you create jobs. Those jobs benefit the communities that the workers live in. I mean, it, it's it's a no-brainer. But then again, you're dealing with Congress. You're dealing with Congress. So good luck to you, and obviously we'll follow this whole thing here. All right, Pete, we got a couple of minutes left. You know tomorrow is Thanksgiving. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation it's food, football, and family. And I, I think we can take that a, a step further because uh, unions, obviously, unions are a family. When you think about that, you think about all the locals out there, the family atmosphere and locals. But the bottom line is this. Um, our working conditions, they don't happen by themselves. I mean, you've got to fight for that. You've got to fight in your union and all that. And I'd just like you to, to talk about that and more, especially as we go into this holiday weekend. Well, thank you. Yes, and especially around this time, uh, we all like to be uh, reflective and be thankful to, for the things that we have. And, and of course, family and, and the well-being of our friends and family is important. But we, we also should be reflective and be thankful that we have opportunities uh, to work in this country, to provide our families with a decent living, with a living wage and the benefits that are, are needed to be able to raise our families. Uh, union started over a hundred years ago with with two basic principles: to be able to have decent working conditions and to be able to to live in our communities with dignity. And for a hundred years, it, it, it's been a battle all the way up until today, and it's going to continue to be a battle. But our our unions, whether they be in the, in, the, in the factories or whether they be on the construction site, um, we should be thankful that we have these standards of, of how a worker should be treated 
and how a worker should be paid. And for everyone that's not part of a union, you have to un- understand the labor movement, the formation of unions have filtered into a lot of legislation that everybody benefits, whether you're working with a union or not. We talk about unemployment insurance, health care insurance, compensation, the eight-hour workday, vacation pay, family leave. It goes on and on and on and on. All of those all of those conditions that the American worker has today, if you look at those roots of where those conditions and where those laws came from, it directly goes back to the labor movement. It goes back to uh, the unions that work hard to generate laws and regulations so that the worker can go home safe every night uh, with a dollar in his pocket or a dollar in her pocket to be able to buy the food and the house and the heat and the utilities, everything, healthcare insurance that, that we need to be able to raise a family. So as troubled as everything is in this world, you know, sometimes you got to pull the joystick back up to 30,000 feet and uh, be thankful that we live in this great country with the opportunities that we have. Uh, and, and God bless our American unions who make that happen for so many Americans. Well said, my man. Great job. Pete Almini joining us on our live line today from New Jersey, executive director of the Labor Management Trust for the Heat and Frost Insulators. Good luck to you on that legislation. You have a wonderful and obviously a very safe holiday, and we'll talk to you in December. Okay, brother? Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving to you and everybody else. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. Coming up next, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters talking about boots on the ground, political and legislative action. That story coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective Democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll free at 1-800-443-3752. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. Now, back to America's workforce. 
Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Before we get to our next guest, just another plug here for the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org. I know we got a lot of people shopping over the holidays here, and a lot of people would like to buy made-in-America goods. They can't find them. Well, <laughs> now you can Just go to AmericanManufacturing.org and uh, check out their 2022 Made in America Holiday Gift Guide. They've been doing this for about eight or nine years, and uh, it's been doing really, really well. So all 50 states are covered, including uh, District of Columbia as well as Puerto Rico. All right, let's go to line number two, and welcome to the show. This is a segment we do each and every month with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And joining us is Harry Grill. Harry is the National Field Director for the Teamsters Department of Political and Legislative Action. And uh, I'll tell you, the Teamsters, along with many union brothers and sisters, did one heck of a job in the midterms, and they ain't done yet. They're working in Georgia as we speak. Harry Grill, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ed. Pleasure to join you today. And... uh, I see you joined the International back when uh, Sean O'Brien became the uh, the International President, which was back in uh, April, March, April. But uh, before that, you're telling me that uh, you spent some time with the culinary workers and Unite Here. Do you mind talking about that? Because I'll tell you, that's a, that's a heck of a union out in Nevada. So uh, talk to me about that time in your life, Harry. Well, I will. Um Worked with the uh, Culinary Workers Union in Nevada from t- 2010 through uh, the 2020 cycle, and I uh, was Unite Here's campaigns director for the 2020 cycle in our target states of Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, and then we were also in Florida. But I'm very proud of the work I did with the Culinary Union, um, you know, building upon the successes of their labor political program by really amplifying it, beginning with the 2012 cycle with uh, President Obama's reelection. And then moving that through the 2016 election with uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, we're the only tier one state that actually beat uh, Donald Trump in Nevada in 2016. Um, Moved that into the midterms with the election of Catherine Cortez Masto in 2016. That was her first election. And then on to with Jackie Rosen beating incumbent Senator Dean Heller in 2018 in the election of Steve Sisolak. And I think the you know the beauty of the culinary program is really it becomes like an organizer training program, a worker training program where you know folks come out on leave of absence, folks from the hotels, housekeepers, Latina housekeepers, and other folks come out, and you know the culinary we provided them with a really robust organizer training program, sort of like a boot camp to get folks you know skilled so they can either go back to their shops as better shop stewards, better members, better activists. By really learning how to have good, strong, quality conversations on the doors. And, uh, you know, one of the things I used to say in training, uh, you know, women housekeepers was that they and, and men was that this was the hardest thing you ever had to do was coming to this country. Right. And then learning how to actually go on the doors and actually have conversations with folks like yourselves is going to be a lot easier than what it was coming to this country, because obviously the culinary program is very strong in Latino and a black turnout. That's probably mm-hmm. the sweet spot of really moving low propensity voters, low propensity being those folks who are new to voting, you know, came to this country, 
became citizens now here, teaching them how to vote and making sure that they understand on how to make a vote plan and how to you know get out and vote. Yeah, and as you can see, the culinary um, has had a, had a remarkable success in Nevada. We're you know really part of the di- critical difference in electing Catherine Cortez Masto, obviously with other folks such as the America Votes Table, and as well as our Teamsters, who in 2022 played a real significant role, and really we began uplifting our program in Nevada with the great work of our locals out there. So everyone contributes to the victory. But in many ways, you know, the culinary labor program is a very remarkable program in terms of its member participation and building the union so that those folks now get ready for their contract fight on the strip on the lake. You know, they're going to have a big contract fight, as the Teamsters will in uh, Mm -hmm. 2023 with the UPS fight. That's interesting, Harry. What about the pandemic? Because I know the pandemic affected those workers, especially around the casinos. Everything was shut down. Um, that had to be a, a hurdle that you had to jump over to uh, to get them back in there because I'm sure a lot of them were pretty disgruntled by by what happened. Many of them lost their jobs. They probably moved on to other jobs. Can you uh, can you reflect on that if you don't mind? Well, you know, I'm not sure. In, in 2020, um, you know, Unite Here and the Culinary Union were, you know, we had 1,700 canvassers in the field. We actually went door to door in one of the few, probably the largest field operation in the country in 2020 by having a door, a door-to-door canvassing program and making sure that there were safety protocols in place. Um, and I think that was very successful for 2020. And a lot of other organizations obviously relied on phone banking. You know, the Biden campaign did not do much field work. They really relied on digital. And I think that, you know, obviously a personal contact field program is something, you know, a ground game really does make the critical difference. I like to call it the red zone. You know, the media and everything else gets you into the red zone, gets you into the goal line. And what a good field program can do is really punch punch it in with, you know, 3 to 5% of the vote. And if you look at the razor-thin margins, both in 2020 and in even this year, you know, that's a critical difference. As for the pandemic, you know, obviously, I can't speak to Nevada. Obviously, those workers in that union, Unite Here, was devastated by that, given that, you know, as was the hospitality industry. But somehow there's a resilience and they're a strong union and they fought back and they were able to, you know, keep their program the same, basically the same program we ran in 2020. They were able to continue doing at even a greater scale in uh, 2022. So they should be commended for the work they did in Nevada as well as work they did in Pennsylvania with a field program. You know, I think in this cycle, we were back to where we were in 2018. I think there were a lot more, there was more field operations. Obviously, it's, we're a lot better off than we were in 2020, in 2022. Yeah. So I think we're back to campaigns. I was very proud of the work that we did with the Culinary Union in Nevada and that Unite Here did in 2020. But more importantly, you know, joining the Teamsters, you know, for me is a new challenge. I think the Teamsters, you know, represent a real moderating and trusted voice in American politics and that workers, whether they're Teamsters or non-union workers or folks that want to be union, really look to the Teamster brand as as playing, you know, as being making helping them make a decision on how to vote. Because, as you know, the Teamsters, we're not Democrats, Republicans or independents. We're just working folks and working people. And I think that, you know, the issues that we have really played away certain segment of the electorate that has kind of maybe felt forgotten. But our members, you know, Teamster members, you know, really have played a significant, did play a significant difference uh, in the razor thin margins this year. Nevada, 
Arizona, certainly mm-hmm. New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, and real proud of that. Uh, you know, obviously, it's the field program. You know, is a you know what I like to call is a we have a work site program. We had over uh, you know 101 individual UPS sites we went to this cycle with over 200 visits. You know, we had over additional 524 work sites in nine targeted states with over 1,175 visits. That's our members having a personal conversation with members at the plant gate about the importance of this election and the importance of voting. So 600 sites, 1,300 visits, nine target states, really, uh, you know, having good conversations. We estimate the Teamsters in this cycle under President O'Brien had 1.9 million voter contacts approximately, over way over half a million pieces of mail, a true comprehensive campaign involving our members a PFO program, political field organizer program that trains folks and makes them really prepared to be better shop stewards, activists, and members. And I, I like to call it, I think a labor political program is a lot different than a candidate program. You know, I call it the permanent campaign where we're building the union for, for the future. We're getting ready for contract fights. We continue. Our members, candidate campaigns, it, it comes and goes, it ends, everyone disperses. But with the union, we remain strong. And my hope is that our political program really is an organizer training program and is there to support other uh, labor initiatives. So I think we all, in in President O'Brien's first cycle here, I think we really, you know, played a significant difference in in the razor-thin margins along with other folks, other Mm -hmm. unions, to really make a difference. And you see the margins, 0.5, 0.4% Nevada, Arizona, 0.2%. New Hampshire said we have 7,000 members in New Hampshire, you know, and you, you know, that makes a critical difference if you're pulling them out to vote. And we'll have statistics down the line because, you know, the numbers don't lie. They, you know, numbers don't lie. They don't always tell the truth, but they don't lie. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, in the end of the day, once the statistics come out, we'll be able to track how well we did in terms of turning out of our members across the cycle, across the spectrum. And really, you know, I think we viewed 2022 as a training ground, getting ready for 2024. Of course, Absolutely. we now have Georgia. We have Georgia now, so we're going to keep going here. We're, we're, we're getting ready to really do a really strong blitz in Georgia for, uh, you know, we've already started with phone banking. We have crews of folks coming down there to do work site work, working with the AFL-CIO in Georgia with our locals down there and getting all ready to, um, you know, bring it home with Reverend Warnock because uh, we think it's important. It's also the home of UPS, um, Georgia, the Atlanta, you know, Atlanta is the headquarters for UPS. So it's an opportunity as we get ready for the, you know, next year to, you know, really have good conversations with our members at the plant gates as well as the doors. Oh, I know. And, phone, I know that's... and, and, and phones for that matter. Yeah, that's a number one priority for the Teamsters. I know you've been targeting UPS. I didn't realize they were in Georgia. So, yeah, you are uh, you are you are ready to take up the task here. This is awesome. I, I can see why International brought you on board. You're bringing a whole lot to the table here. Uh, one more question here before we uh, wrap things up. You're National Field Director for the yes. Department of Political yes. Legislative. Now, you you have a team of people. I mean, you're, you're core, everything that you just explained to our listeners, you're in charge of all of that. Is that right, Harry? 
I am. We have a wonderful. Yes, I am uh, in in part. But I think of myself, um, you know, as part of a team. We've got a great team at DPLA. Uh, our political director uh, Tyler Longpine works with me directly on a lot of our political communications. As does Ted, uh, who Ted Gosh, who you uh, mentioned before, or does political work with us. We have regional coordinators uh, in four across the country who serve as you know field directors in the you know central, eastern, southern, and western states. And quite frankly, you know, Teamsters have real ownership of their union at the local level. So we have many folks, our, our principal officers, our political coordinators, all play an active role in planning and executing the program. They, they know what's best for their state. And really what we're trying to do is provide them with, you know, the resources to support them. It's very important. We provide them with the support, the resources, and, you know, tech expertise and knowledge to kind of help them make the decisions to execute their programs at the uh, field level. Um, and I think, you know, again, I think we're very proud of doing field work and voter personal contact. Um, you know, I think the Democratic Party, and this is my personal opinion, not necessarily the Teamsters. I think the Democrats have, you know, really have been relying on fancy consultants and a lot of, you know, a lot of cookie, I call them cookie cutter consultants who use the same stuff over and over again. They're, they're, they're sitting in Washington in some boardroom and they're not really smelling the air or having the conversations with the voters. I always go out on the doors and to the work sites along with the members because I really want to hear and, and, and breathe the air that they're breathing and listen to the stories that they have and what is it that moves them. And that's kind of like how we do our focus groups. We're, in, we're on the ground. We're listening. Mm -hmm. God gave you two ears and one mouth. You know, it's important to listen to what our members are saying and to really kind of work with them to get out and vote, get out and vote, make a vote plan. When are you going to vote? I think it's very hard for people. I think, you know, a lot of folks have a lot of things on their mind. They got families, daycare. Some people have to drive to work. Voting's a leisure activity. Rich people, working people, lawyers, they can basically sit there and say, oh, I think I'll vote at one o'clock or two o'clock. But if you punch a clock, you're a UPS driver. You got to make a plan to vote. You got to mm -hmm. vote early because you've got all the responsibilities. It's a, it's a, it, it makes it's hard for folks to vote. So we really want to work on really giving our members the tools and the opportunities to make a good decision and to vote. Harry, it seems like you got all cylinders humming here. I really appreciate you coming to the table here at America's Workforce. Harry Grill, National Field Director for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, their Department of Political and Legislative Action. Can't wait to see the results in Georgia. You stay safe. Enjoy the holiday, okay, brother? Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving to you and all your listeners. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, Bill Samuel, Government Affairs Director of the Labor Federation, and we're going to check in with the San Joaquin California building trades. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.